0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, your breast cancer and GYN surgeon next door. I bring you women's health doctors explaining stuff in easy ways, debunking dangerous myths, and bringing you the real tea on staying healthy during these troubling times of misinformation. Today, I have a very special guest, one of my OG residency besties, Dr. Jenna Emerson, who breaks down pap smears, HPV tests, and cervical cancer. Why
1: do I have this? t-shaped uterus excellent question the vagina is a powerful machine a vagina is
0: glorious
1: and it's entertaining and fun too because i know what's inside of girls like you and like me now it is time for the physical examination let's go take a look at your volvo well that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy your symptoms sound hormonal to me i'd like a second opinion this seems very
0: questionable. questionable i'm dr kristen rojas and this is the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Jenna Emerson. Jenna is a GYN oncologist, and we were in OBGYN residency together at Brown University Women and Infants Hospital, so we spent four years together. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here as well as one of my closest friends and an expert in women's health. Jenna will be starting her academic GYN oncology career at OHSU or Oregon Health Sciences University starting in August. August, (laughs) And that will be after she finishes her GYN oncology fellowship at Women and Infants Hospital. So Oregon... Watch out, because (laughs) Jenna Emerson is coming for you. Okay, what is a GYN oncologist?
1: The way I explain it to patients is that our training is specialized in women's cancer surgery and treatment. So our specific focus is in surgical management and post-operative management, including things like chemotherapy and recommending other treatments like radiation therapy For women's reproductive cancers. So specifically cancers of the uterus, cervix, fallopian tubes and ovaries, and the vulva. So that means that we complete a four-year residency in OBGYN and then go on to do a surgical subspecialty fellowship of at least three, sometimes four more years of women's cancer surgery training and training in giving women chemotherapy for their cancers. So I hope
0: that none of our listeners ever have to meet a GYN (laughs) oncologist, but if they do, you can rest assured that GYN oncologists have gone through many years of training to be the female cancer experts that they are. Knowing a GYN oncologist is always good as a benign gynecologist because we value GYN oncologists as the best surgeons or the badass surgeons (laughs) that you would want to call into your OR in case you get in trouble. So GYN oncologists go through extra training to be not only cancer experts and deal with the aftermath of women's cancer, but also are excellent surgeons. So tell us again, Jenna, What kind of types of cancer do your patients have?
1: Yeah, so we we get, you know, in the end, kind of a broad spectrum of women who end up in our office. As you so kindly said, um, people do regard GYN oncologists as kind of the expert female pelvic surgeons. And so not all of our patients have cancer. We oftentimes will help take care of women who have complex surgical histories or, who have had some sort of a gynecologic problem that has led to significant scar tissue or adhesions in the pelvis. And it's understood by their surgeons that doing any operation on them will be difficult. So they will be referred to us even though cancer isn't necessarily the primary problem. Uh, Especially our, our younger patients oftentimes are women with things like endometriosis or who have had perhaps a complicated obstetric history and now need some kind of surgical management um, following that. So some of our women don't have cancer, um, but other patients either have things like endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. That Those are sort of interchangeable terms for our purposes. Or they may have ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, or cancer of the vulva. So when did
0: you decide that you wanted to be a GYN oncologist? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, we. Because I always knew you were a badass, but when did you decide to be
1: a trained badass? Specific badass. <laughs> um, we, as residents, did several rotations our very first year of residency on the GYN Oncology Service. And on those rotations, we were not really in the operating room, but spent our time managing uh, women either post operatively on the inpatient units or um, not all of those patients are post-op. Some of them have complicated cancer histories and would be admitted to the service due to complications from their cancer itself. So in that first year of residency, that was my initial exposure to the types of patients that we would take care of. And I really just fell in love with the women that we take care of. I think they're a really inspirational group of people who are going through a difficult time in their life, and I enjoyed the opportunity to connect with them. So Really, it was kind of the very beginning of residency when I became interested in the field.
0: Most OBGYN residencies are four years. And then
1: nowadays,
0: a lot of OBGYN residency graduates do go on to do other specialties. So now that I'm a breast cancer surgeon, I also was originally drawn to GYN oncology as well because I thought that it was a really uh, special and unique relationship to, de- to interact with women at such a vulnerable time in their lives when they're obviously very scared and have a really big diagnosis. And you can not only be a women's health expert, but also be their ally in this big journey that they're about to embark on. And to me, not only just a specialty where you are a surgical expert, but also where you build really strong emotional relationships with your patients. Mm-hmm. And knowing you as a person... Mm-hmm that makes sense to me. Today we're going to talk about HPV and it is, everyone's probably heard of HPV, but maybe not everyone understands what it is or why it's so bad and what we can do to prevent it and why it's such a big deal for a GYN oncologist. So you're probably very passionate about Mm -hmm. HPV and preventing HPV. So why don't you tell
1: us a little bit about what it is? Sure. So HPV is something I spend a lot of time talking about. Um, The most common way I think that uh, I'll end up interacting with a patient with an uh, HPV-related problem is when they have an abnormal pap smear. You know, I think probably most women are familiar with the concept of a pap smear. Tell everyone what a pap smear is. A pap smear is when uh, a brush or a spatula of some sort is used on the surface of the cervix to screen for abnormal cells that are the precursor to cervical cancer. So let's go back to the beginning. Where is my cervix? Yes, good question. Tell
0: everyone where their cervix is.
1: <laughs> so usually at this point in the conversation, I um, turn my patient records over and draw a little doodle on the back of the sheet to, to give people that illustration. But I'll just have to sort of draw a word picture instead. So the cervix is the bottom part of the uterus. The vagina is the opening that goes up towards the uterus and then the cervix is about four centimeters long in most women and it's the distinction between vagina and uterus itself. I sometimes tell patients that the uterus
0: is like an upside down wine bottle (laughs) and the baby grows inside the wine bottle but the cork is the cervix. (laughs) That's amazing. Why have I never told somebody that? That's so good. (laughs) You're welcome, world. Yeah. (laughs) So why is cervical cancer such a big deal?
1: You know, in some ways, it's kind of an ideal cancer to screen for and treat because the process from normal cells of the cervix developing all the way to cancer is one that takes a long time. And so in between from normal to cancer, there are a number of intermediate steps of abnormal cells that develop, which if you catch them at that early stage before they've turned into cancer, you can cure it really quickly.
0: Yeah. So that sounds a lot like breast cancer. So now we have mammograms that screen for breast cancer. So if we catch breast cancer very early, we can oftentimes cure patients with just surgery plus or minus
1: chemotherapy, plus or minus radiation. Is that like the same concept? With the cervix in particular, these precancer steps oftentimes don't even require all of those extra things like radiation and chemotherapy. The goal is to find precancer cells before they ever turn into cancer so that a very minor surgery done in the office can cure the whole problem.
0: So, if I go to the gynecologist and I have a pelvic exam, does that mean that I also had a Pap smear? It does not.
1: Good question. So, a Pap smear um, is a specific test that's ordered. A pelvic exam means that the gynecologist uh, puts a speculum inside the vagina. Is that like the duck bill? Thing like the that- the duck bill thing, or some people call it like clamps. <laughs> sometimes they're sometimes they're plastic, sometimes they're metal. There's really not a difference between the two in terms of discomfort. Uh, I know sometimes people think the metal ones look more severe or extreme, but they honestly, from a patient experience perspective, are really no different. But yeah, exactly. It's the the duckbill thing. So
0: when you place the speculum in the vagina and
1: you open it, you can usually see the cervix or
0: the cork of the (laughs) wine bottle at the top of the vagina. And that's where you take your pap smear. So just because someone goes to the gynecologist and they have a pelvic exam for a couple other reasons, like maybe if they have pelvic pain or if they have something on their vulva that they need their GYN to check out, doesn't necessarily mean you're having a pap smear. So if you go to the gynecologist and you get a pelvic exam, you should ask them if they're collecting a pap smear. This is important because you actually don't need a pap smear every year now. Right. Yeah, especially if you've never had an abnormal pap smear. Now you can space your pap smears out to every three or every five years. You have to get them more frequently if you've had a history of abnormal pap smears. So when you go to the gynecologist, make sure you ask your gynecologist if you're also getting a pap smear. This is important, like if you're going to be moving somewhere, so that you can mm-hmm. tell your new gynecologist when we your last Pap smear was, was. yeah, <laughs> exactly, and whether whether it was abnormal, um, etc. And also, while we're on the topic of moving somewhere, <laughs> if you could actually acquire your gyn <laughs> records and take them with you, That'd your be next
1: amazing, your ne-
0: <laughs> exactly. So, okay. Patient gets a pap smear. So we're looking at cells to see if they're precancerous cells, but what else are we looking for? Isn't that also where we also test them for HPV? Yep, absolutely.
1: So there are a variety of guidelines out there that inform your gynecologist with regards to the most appropriate testing for you as a patient. And the honest truth is it's a rather complex set of algorithms that nobody really memorizes. And... The, the point is not to understand like all of the steps of the process, but rather to know and trust that um, there's a very clearly defined pathway that your gynecologist should be following to decide when you need a pap smear and when you get a pap smear, if it should be the pap smear alone or a pap smear with HPV testing. So again, to back up a little bit, a pap smear is um, a test that gives us information about cytology. So when you take the little brush and you um, brush it on a, on a woman's cervix and then put it in a little jar of solution and it goes off to the lab, they look at the cells from the brush under the microscope and say, do these cells look normal or abnormal? And if they look abnormal, the gynecologist gets that information and will call you back and say, hey, we need to do some more testing. All we're seeing there is individual cells. We're not seeing what the actual tissue of the cervix itself looks like. So it might be that there's just one funky abnormal cell there hanging out on your cervix, or it might be that all the cells of your cervix are abnormal. And that's why you need more testing to figure out was this just kind of a rando bad actor or are like all of inflammation, the cells. Right. Exactly. Yeah, inflammation can cause abnormal cells, but they may call you back to
0: do more tests to see if it's actually precancer or just inflammation. Exactly. So they look at
1: the cells, but then they also do an HPV test, right? Yeah. So depending on sort of complicated algorithms, based on a bunch of research that's been done to try and figure out the best way to check for cervical cancer or abnormal cervix cells, you may or may not also get an HPV test. So HPV is the human papillomavirus. It's the virus that causes cervical cancer. And we can test on that same specimen, the exact same sample of the cervix, and see if you have been infected with HPV. And depending on the results of that test, we know whether or not you are high risk for developing abnormal cells of the cervix, which eventually, if given enough time, could turn into cancer of the cervix.
0: Is HPV
1: like bacteria or can I take antibiotics to make HPV go away? Great question. Um, So, HPV is a virus and viruses do not respond to antibiotics. We don't have an actual treatment to eliminate or treat the HPV virus itself. All we can do is respond to the changes it causes inside the cells of the cervix. So, from a treatment standpoint, we test and see if the cells are becoming abnormal. If they are, we have steps that we can take to address that problem. From a prevention standpoint, we can give the HPV vaccine to prevent you from ever becoming infected with HPV to begin with.
0: Everyone has probably heard of HPV, and it's actually pretty common, right? Most women at some point in their lives are actually infected with HPV, right? Absolutely. And so what happens to that? The question is, does it ever go away or does your body kind of
1: clear the virus So the way I explain HPV to my patients is I tell them that um, to me in my life, HPV is kind of like the common cold. So I don't know anyone that's never had a cold. Like everyone in the world at some point has been exposed to the virus that causes the cold.
0: We probably don't know anyone that's never had HPV that's either. And <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should just tell like everyone we, everyone's now. Everyone's had HPV. It's everyone okay. to know in the world, it's okay. H, everyone I'm pretty gets, sure I've had HPV. You've had sex, you've had HPV. Your yeah. body probably clears it, but there's some
1: HPV types that are way worse than other types, right? Exactly. So the same way that sometimes you get a cold and it's just a few little sniffles, And it's kind of annoying, but you still go to work. And then sometimes you get a cold, and it's so terrible that you are in bed for three days, and you really can't function at all. And then you get pneumonia. And then you get pneumonia, (laughs) exactly. HPV is caused by a variety of different viruses that have different levels of aggressiveness and different levels of ability to make you sick. HPV viruses can
0: cause both cervical cancer and genital warts, which is like everyone hates genital warts.
1: Exactly. And most of the time when people have an HPV infection, they, first of all, don't even know it ever. And second of all, their immune system clears it and it is eliminated from their body before it ever has a chance to cause anything bad to happen. So that's kind of like the sniffles version of the cold where it's not a big deal. One of the things that I learned in residency that I think probably is really important
0: for everyone to know is that there are certain behaviors or things you do that make the
1: HPV virus stick around longer. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So, like smoking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> smoking is, that, is the biggest thing for sure. There are ways you can affect your body and make it less able to fight these viruses, and smoking is the, the biggest risk factor for not being able to eliminate the virus from your body.
0: One of our mentors at Brown said that the carcinogens in cigarette smoke actually collect in the cervical mucus. So uh, for a while, I was always telling patients that it's, when you smoke, it's like your vagina is actually <laughs> smoking a cigarette. Whether And I feel like that's a really good visual aid for patients yeah. to understand how smoking can really affect your body in different ways. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So when, in the office, when we see patients who have these high-risk HPV types, we worry more about them if they're smokers because we worry that their body's not going to clear this virus normally.
1: Exactly. And whether or not you end up with a version of a virus or a type of the virus that is a real bad actor that's likely to cause cervical cancer, or whether or not you end up exposed to a type of the virus that is pretty mild and is unlikely to cause you any major problem is totally a matter of luck. So it's not something that you're doing. It's not something that your partner's doing. It's not anything about who you are as a person Pretty much everyone's been exposed to HPV, and either you got lucky and were exposed to one of the kind of mild types that your body just eliminated, or you were exposed to one of the really aggressive types that's more likely to cause cervical cancer.
0: Once you have HPV, smoking makes it more difficult for your body to clear HPV, but Tell us about ways that we could maybe prevent HPV other than abstinence because Mm -hmm. abstinence (laughs) and only education doesn't work. Yeah, not a good solution. (laughs) Yeah. And so what are some other, you know, obviously there's one thing that I'm leading the witness (laughs) I want you to talk about. Tell us how we could prevent
1: some of these bad actor forms of HPV. Absolutely. So um, the HPV vaccine is one of the biggest revolutions in women's health that's happened within the last couple of decades. The vaccine is given as a series of shots, both for boys and girls, at a young age before they have ever potentially been exposed to HPV vaginally or through intercourse. Depending on the version of the vaccine that you receive, vaccinates against a number of lines of the virus itself. And so the idea is to prevent the most common types of the HPV virus that cause either cervical cancer or genital warts. Does HPV just cause cervical
0: cancer? Like, why would we want our patients' 11-year-old sons to have the HPV vaccine?
1: Yeah, great question. So it, it causes more than just cervical cancer. It causes cancer... Um, Causes penis cancer. It causes penis cancer.
0: Like everyone should know that HPV causes penis <laughs> it cancer, does. and it causes throat cancer and it causes yeah. like anal cancer, penis cancer, oropharyngeal, or pharyngeal, oro-pharyngeal. Oral pharyngeal cancer. HPV causes a lot of different types of vulvar cancer. Vulvar cancer, exactly. Yeah. So it's not just women that are affected by the HPV virus; it is men or boys also. So by Also making sure that we vaccinate young men and women. We're preventing future cancers, not only in women, but in men. A lot of people don't realize that. Absolutely. Yeah. Does the HIV vaccine cause autism? It sure doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jenny McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. More on that later. But one of the other (laughs) things, cervical cancer is a really painful, awful way to die. And if there's things that we can do not only to prevent cervical cancer in ourselves, but in our kids. I feel like if everyone only knew someone who had died from cervical cancer, we mm-hmm. wouldn't be basing all of these big media campaigns against something that could really save all of
1: these lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really important to know is that in the developing world, cervical cancer is, depending on the country that you're looking at, but as a, as a general rule is one of the most common causes of cancer-related death for women, period. It's 100% preventable, like purely, completely, entirely preventable. And women all over the world die from cervical cancer and they die very painful, miserable deaths at a very young age from a completely preventable cancer. This is like one of the best examples of women's health um, taking a backseat to other problems in countries where resources are limited. And, and women directly suffering as a result of that. So it's a huge issue in terms of healthcare outcome inequality and, and women's justice. Those are excellent points.
0: One other question that patients might ask you is how outside of the vaccine, can you prevent HPV just by
1: using condoms? That's a good question. So um, condoms are thought to protect against HPV transmission generally, but it would require 100% uh, adherence to using condoms every single time that you have intercourse. and Including oral sex, right? In- including oral sex. Yeah, because HPV can be transmitted not just from vaginal intercourse, but any type of sexual activity, any, right? Any kind whatsoever, yeah. And the, the reality is we know when, it, when it's been studied that as much as people might, you know, hope to have complete 100% compliance with condom use uh, in, in the real world, no one does that. You know, at, at some point, you end up having unprotected intercourse and risk not only pregnancy, but also HPV and other STI transmission as well. Real Sex by Jenna and Kristen.
0: <laughs> Your welcome, world. This is real life. If a patient is going to be vaccinated for HPV, how many shots do they need? Three. Four? It's three unless you vaccinate them less than age 15. If you catch them earlier okay. than 15, they only need two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so,
1: how many types of HPV does the modern HPV vaccine? Um, it's a non vaccine, <laughs> which is a fancy way to say it vaccinates against nine strains. Is that right? Yeah. So, nine vac- strains. Yes. It is right.
0: You know this. You're the expert. But the 9-valent HPV vaccine actually vaccinates against the highest risk types of HPV that cause cervical cancer, but also some that cause genital warts. Yes. Yeah, so the types of HPV that cause genital warts are less likely to cause cervical cancer, but... Who doesn't think that genital warts are a major bummer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I knew multiple people in college that had genital warts. I don't know anyone that's ever like publicly admitted to it on a social level, but like I've had plenty of patients. Yeah. So genital warts, although
0: not as bad as cervical cancer and curable, are also covered in the HPV vaccine.
1: And I think they're just like disappointing to have. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) Earlier in this, I was explaining that a pap smear tells us only a random sample of cells from the surface of the cervix, and so we might find that there are abnormal cells on the cervix, or we might find that the patient is um, harboring a high-risk strain or a high-risk version of the HPV virus, and therefore, they're at an increased risk of developing uh, cervical cancer. So... From there, our next step is to perform something called colposcopy. And colposcopy has, you know, kind of a complex sounding name, but it's actually not that different from really a routine pelvic exam when it comes to the patient experience. Right. So, Isn't it just like you're it's doing like a pelvic long here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you also just kind of look at the cervix with a microscope. Exactly. So we have this fancy microscope device. It's called a colposcope, but it really is just a kind of a doodad that we slide into place in front of the speculum, and we use it to magnify our view of the cervix and see what the cervix looks like. So for the patient, you are seated on an exam table with your feet and footrests, and you have the speculum in your vagina, and it lasts longer than a regular pap smear by, you know, a couple of minutes.
0: If you have a good GYN oncologist or gynecologist.
1: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) In the best case scenario. But... You know that really is kind of the worst of It's just that it's a long time of having a speculum in the vagina. If we see that the surface of the cervix looks abnormal or unusual to us, then the next step is to take biopsies, which again, for the patient is kind of like a, a couple of cramps that you might feel sort of like really strong menstrual cramps. But beyond that, you know, really isn't much more extreme. And then we use those biopsies to decide if anything additional needs to be done, like a surgical procedure, or if we just need to repeat a pap smear in a year or so.
0: Okay. A couple more things I want to touch on. So what is the maximum age
1: that a patient can get an HPV vaccine if they haven't been previously vaccinated? Really great question. So that's, yeah, that's true. The FDA um, updated their approval of HPV vaccination within the last couple of years. And so now women up to the age of 45 have approval to receive the HPV vaccine for the purposes of cervical cancer prevention. So regardless of, you know, marital status or social status or, uh, you know, types of partners, um, heterosexual, homosexual, You know, it really does not matter who you are or or how you live your life. If you are um, 45 years old or younger and you have not had the HPV vaccine, we strongly recommend that you get it. Yeah, so talk to your primary care doctor. If a
0: patient is unlucky enough or unfortunate enough or busy enough to where they haven't had an HPV vaccine and they unfortunately have cervical cancer, what are some of the presenting signs that we see
1: patients? Some of the most common signs are... Irregular menstrual bleeding, intermenstrual bleeding, so bleeding in between periods, postcoital bleeding. What bleeding, does that mean? Bleeding after intercourse, uh, pelvic pain, and yeah. urinary symptoms. Yeah, yeah, you can get urinary symptoms. I yeah. feel like the most com- the, so the, the most common thing is we see postcoital bleeding are weird bleeding patterns. Yeah, weird bleeding patterns. If you're not having regular periods and you're having irregular bleeding episodes, or you've had menopause and you're having bleeding after menopause, that should prompt evaluation by a gynecologist. Okay.
0: This has all been really helpful information. It's also reminded me that I need to go to the gynecologist (laughs) that we talked about before. So doctors definitely make the worst patients. Mm -hmm. But if you could give one piece of advice or one piece of information about HPV or preventing cervical cancer to your mom or your sister or your friend from college,
1: what would you tell them? To me, the most important thing to know is that routine women's health screening, this is a boring answer, but it's like so real. Routine women's health screening is critical to preventing gynecologic cancers. So see a gynecologist. It doesn't have to be a gynecologist. It can be a family practice doctor or an internal medicine doctor, but someone who will do a pelvic exam every single year.
0: The other important point that I wanted to make is that As a breast cancer surgeon, I, like you said before, see patients after they've already been diagnosed, but we don't have a vaccine for breast cancer. We have really good ways of screening for early stage breast cancer, but this is one of these awful cancers that we can actually prevent, and so it's a totally different animal. So I feel like once people understand that aspect of it, that hopefully we can even if we can convince one or two more people to vaccinate their kids or get vaccinated themselves, then it's been a success. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so now that we've finished our discussion about uh, cervical cancer and HPV, now I want you to tell us more about... Uh, what your plans are for when you go to Oregon. Tell Mm -hmm. us about what your short-term plans are and what your big goals for your career and how you're going to change women's lives.
1: Well, I'm really excited to be headed back to Oregon. I went to medical school. I'm I'm from Oregon. I grew up there. And I went to medical school at OHSU, which is the medical school in Portland. And I'm totally thrilled to be joining an academic practice at the place that turned me into a doctor and gave me the opportunity to, to do what I do today. What's a fun fact about Portland that you can tell us? Fun fact about... Oh, fun fact about Portland. Okay. My favorite thing about Portland is that every early fall, it's usually like late August, early September, there's um, this flock of birds <laughs> that comes through the city. They're so weird. I know. And they have this kind of like massive nightly dance. They're migratory birds and they all... They all swarm and flock over the chimney of an old elementary school, and they form, like, a giant bird tornado, and all at once, and no one really understands, like, how or why they coordinate it so much, but they all at once, the tornado just turns into, like, a perfect spiral, and they all dive into the chimney, and they roost there for the night. That sounds like witchcraft. Yeah, it's crazy. And in the meantime, there are hawks that are coming and that are trying to, like, pick off little baby birds out of the flock of birds and a whole crowd of people gathers. Cause it's like right in the middle of the city. So you like bring like a picnic blanket and a picnic and a bottle of wine and like people hang out and sit there. Cause it's like a nice fall evening. And then you like boo the hawks that are trying to catch the birds and then like cheer when all the birds go in. This sounds like a weird yeah, um, it's kinda... Netflix series. It should be on TV, but it's not yet. <laughs> but you'll have to come visit me and watch it. It's called the um Swiss. They're called the type of bird is called the Swift. So it's called the Something School Swifts. Yeah, we'll have to check that out.
0: <laughs> that's oh, my best fact. Jenna, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and thank you listeners for tuning in. To stay up to date with the latest in women's health, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Kristen Rojas MD. That's at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-O-J-A-S-M-D. Also check out our Sexual Health After Cancer program on Instagram at music underscore sex after cancer. You can contact me with your questions and other topics you'd like to hear in this podcast by writing to realwomenshealth at gmail.com. Thank you and mm-hmm. until next time